What's good? Welcome back to Black and Published, a podcast for writers, poets, playwrights, and storytellers of all kinds. I'm your host, Nikisha Elise Williams, an award-winning author, two-time Emmy Award-winning producer, publisher, all that good stuff. Today, we're talking with Donnie Walton, author of The Final Revival of Opal and Nev, out right now from Simon & Schuster. Donnie Walton's work as a fiction writer and journalist explores identity, place, and the influence of pop culture. She has won fellowships from McDowell and the Tin House Summer Workshop and earned her MFA from the Iowa Writers Workshop. Previously, she worked as an executive level editor for magazine and multimedia brands, including Essence, Entertainment Weekly, Getty Images, and Life. Her short fiction has been featured on the Poets and Writers Ampersand podcast and as part of Let's Play, Imagination, Intuition, and Black Creativity, an interdisciplinary exhibit of Afro-surreal art at Oakland's Pro Arts Gallery. A native of Jacksonville, Florida, Duval, she lives now with her husband in Brooklyn. In this conversation, we discuss taking that first leap of faith into what you love, the beauty of Black vernacular, the importance of immersing yourself in music, and why understanding yourself and your story helps make your work even stronger. Black and Published family, let's welcome Donnie Walton to the show. So, Donnie, thank you for joining me on Black and Published today. And congratulations on Opal and Nev. Thank you so much, Nikisha. I'm happy to be here. You're welcome. So I always like to ask for the first question, when did you know that you were a writer? <laughs> I think my, my, my whole family was very encouraging of the affinity that I seem to have for words for from a very young age, especially my my grandparents, my my father's parents. I had cousins that did all kinds of other things. I had a little cousin who was like an athlete and did baseball and football, and they loved to take people to his games. And I had another cousin who ran track, you know, so they had like little clippings of her all over the walls. And for me, it was that I was such a big reader. And I remember one time, I must have been about eight years old, and we had some family visiting from California. And my grandparents liked to show off a little bit. So they were like, Donnie, Donnie, come take this Time magazine and read the cover story out loud. And I will never forget, it was a story about Lee Iacocca, who was at the time the, was he the CEO? of like a car company. I don't remember if it was Ford or whatever, but he was this big business executive. It was a big, serious article. And I had no idea what I was reading, but they wanted to show (laughs) off that, like, I love to read and I loved words. And then I remember probably when I was in fifth grade, we had a substitute teacher in school. And I do not remember this woman's name. I only remember what she looked like. She was like this kind of 
hippie style, like white woman with like long gray hair and like sandals and everything. And she gave us some kind of writing exercise to do in class. And she called me out of class. She, you know, said, can you come out into the hallway for a minute? And I thought I was in trouble. I had no idea. And she said, do you know that you're a writer? Do you know how special this is? She said, I can hear it even in this little paragraph you wrote. And ever since then, like I started thinking about words in a different way. And I started writing little stories and, you know, going on a family trip to Miami and writing all about that trip that we took on Amtrak, which was quite an adventure (laughs) from Jacksonville down to Miami. (laughs) Um, And then from then on, I just was always writing. You know, I was on my high school newspaper. I was the editor Uh, went to college for journalism and always thought that it would be journalistic style writing because I was always really practical. And I figured, well, I like to write. This is the way that I can have a steady career writing, but always wanted to do fiction in my heart, you know, all those years, 20 years as a journalist and kind of having this other dream that would pop up now and then, um, but yeah, yeah, I think that's those those were the beginnings. It was sort of always something that was in me, starting with me being a reader. So as you were dreaming about writing fiction while working as a journalist, because you worked for Essence and you've worked for Time, which brings that full circle reading it out loud. <laughs> <laughs> was the story in your head for fiction always Opal and Nev, or were there other stories that you never put down? Yeah, there were other little stories, um, mostly kind of semi-autobiographical things, you know, as young writers tend to tend to do. Um, but, you know, I wrote some short fiction, which I still feel like I haven't nailed the art of short fiction. And I know you had Disha on your podcast. She's a writer that I hugely admire. And I'm trying to learn so much from Secret Lives of Church Ladies. Um, but yeah, I never really attempted a novel. It was always just little stories that that I tried to do um, about, you know, relationships and things like that. Sometimes I would hear a little thing on the news and think it was interesting and try to write a little short story around it. Um, but this this particular story, this novel didn't really come to me until. 2013. Yeah. Is that when you decided to make the leap for sure and say, okay, I want to focus more on fiction and not so much the journalism? Yeah. So 2013 was a real transitional year for me. Uh, Personally, I had been married before and was going through a divorce and was kind of questioning a lot of things about my life. And kind of being a little lovingly tough on myself for some choices uh, and paths that I had taken because I had been so very much on the straight and narrow my whole life and very driven in a way that was beneficial in many ways because I had this amazing career, but I had never really, I felt, taken a risk or taken a leap into something that felt really, really, really exciting to me. And, you know, I had the spark for the idea in 2013 and 
I just started writing it for myself, like I always did writing for myself when I was writing fiction. And then it began to take a shape that I felt, I really think that this is something special. I really think that I would like to share this with other people. And that's when I started getting more serious about it. And I had a friend who's a writer and had published a couple of books and very much believed in my talent and said, you know, there are all these opportunities out there. There's residencies, there's fellowships. You should really look into this. And so I decided to apply to a residency, um, McDowell, which is the artist's interdisciplinary artist's colony in New Hampshire. And he said, you know, I'll write you a letter of recommendation because he had been before. And um, so I said, okay, not really thinking anything of it. And when I researched it, I got intimidated because it's very prestigious. It's, like, <laughs> it's, it's prestigious and it's competitive to get into it. And I had by that point, probably maybe about 40 pages of this novel. And for the sample, you turn in like 25, right? So I was like, okay, well, I'll give this a shot. The, the admission fee isn't too high. <laughs> Let me just go ahead and do it. I have my letter of recommendation, whatever. But I do remember the moment where I hit submit, the submit button, and I said, okay, I made a promise to myself, if I get this, I'm going and I'm going to take this chance. And I ended up getting in to my shock. <laughs> and then I had a choice to make because I had an amazing career at the time I was at Essence. I know a lot of people thought I was crazy um, to leave that job. And it was a job that was hard to leave because in a lot of ways it was very fulfilling but I felt like taking the leap into fiction was something that I, I owed myself. Mm. So I could have gone to McDowell for two weeks, which meant, you know, I could take vacation time, come right back to work. But I knew that that wouldn't be enough. So I ended up doing six weeks, left Essence, figured I would do the six weeks, I would get a lot of work done. I'd come back to New York and I'd go back into my career. I'd get another job somewhere. Well, in the middle of those six weeks, I learned about MFA programs and then it was over. <laughs> then it was over. It was done then. That was in October. The MFA applications were due in December. So I got back to New York and I started applying. And you applied to Iowa. I did. Another yeah. very prestigious, very hard to get in program. What? So when you went all in, you went all in. Was there, did you have any fear? Oh, yeah. That? Yeah. I mean, so I applied to Iowa. Yeah, but I applied to 10 other schools. I did 11 applications all over the country. I had no idea where I was going to end up or if I was even going to end up anywhere. <laughs> But I, that's how excited I was. And that's wow. how strongly I believe that this, this is what I'm being called to do in this moment. And this moment was what the career before it was leading up to. Because the career before gave me a nest 
so that I could live like graduate student at 40, right? Um, that's what that career did for me. And it prepared me to write this book, honestly, because the book, it's fiction, but it's written in a journalistic form, um, the oral history form. So I felt excited, but also just like at times, what am I doing? <laughs> and I think my parents, they were excited for me, but they were also kind of like, oh, what's happening? Where, where is she going? You know, um, but I, I will say that I think that the first step off the ledge is the scariest. And after that, you feel empowered and the fear lessens, the fear diminishes. Um, it's that first step, though, that's very difficult. And for me, that first step was leaving Essence, going to McDowell, and deciding that these were the steps into a new career. So everybody else around you is looking like you're having a midlife crisis and then you seem to be very focused. <laughs> yeah, I felt weirdly calm during it all, you know? And I think part of my personality is to go ahead and embrace, well, not embrace, but thinking about, okay, what's the absolute worst thing that can happen? What's the worst thing that can happen? I have to move back in with my mama. Well, is that is that, that bad? No, it's not that bad. <laughs> I'll, I'll rebound, you know, I can go back, get another job, it's fine. And once I accepted that, it became a lot less, a lot less scary. So in that freedom, what did it feel like to then immerse yourself in the artistic discipline of writing? Because journalism, as we both know, is very strict. I mean, magazine is a little bit more free, but it's still within the, the guidelines and parameters of, of journalism and the discipline. So what did that, what did that do for you, freeing up for you? to just really just dive into all of your creativity? It was incredibly humbling because I had no idea what it meant to really be an artist and to have all this time, like the gift of time just stretching out in front of you and learning how to structure it and learning what works best for you and being accountable only to yourself is, is probably, you know, one of the biggest things. As you said, there's, you know, before you have a publishing deal or whatever, you don't really have any deadlines except the ones that you give to yourself. And it was also vulnerable because it was something that was new to me, sharing creative work with other people for feedback, I think it, and a critique. I think it was easier for me than most people who are new to writing, because as you know, as journalists, we get edited. So you're used to doing changes, revisions, you're used to feedback like that. But still, when it's creative work, when it's entirely from you and your voice and your characters, it's a little bit different. It's a little bit different. So. There were some things to get used to, but I love that my first 
experience of being an artist was at McDowell because you had so many different kinds of artists. And I learned so much from them, from visual artists, from composers, filmmakers. And it was just really enlightening to watch the way that they worked and watch the discipline that they had honed over the years, because I was probably the greenest person there. Everybody else had been working as an artist for some time and they understood how to make money stretch when you needed it to stretch (laughs) and applying for fellowships and grants was part of that life and understanding that that is part of that life. All of it was very new to me. And so I spent probably the first two weeks there just very quiet and watching and learning and absorbing that experience. But it was really magic, honestly, you know, to be talking about creativity and living that creative life so intensely. And you said you had about 40 pages of the novel done when you, or started, when you went to McDowell. How much did you come out with before you applied to the MFA program? Well, I had about 40 pages when I applied. And then by the time my residency finally came around, because it was several months, I probably had maybe a total of 100, 125 pages. And I wrote another 80 when I was in those six weeks at McDowell. So I was pretty deep into a first draft. It was really different than what this book ended up being, but it was just part of the generative process. Yeah. Yeah. The first draft never looks like the final. final Oh, never, never. (laughs) So then what did you learn in workshopping Oakland Nev at Iowa um, that helped you kind of refine it to get it to go out for agencies and publishing like that? Yeah. When I started, I probably had about two thirds of a full draft and the full thing, it was completely oral history. There was no Sonny character. So Sonny is the journalist in, in the novel who puts everything into a context and she has a personal tie to Opal and Nev. And my first workshop was in the fall of 2016. And I shared about 20 pages with my classmates and they said about all the interviews, this is really intriguing. We're excited about this, but we wonder who is everybody talking to? Who was in the room? Who was the person collecting all these stories and anecdotes? And I thought that that was a really provocative question for me because you realize that there's this invisible presence that's in the book. And I thought, wow, how interesting. And I sought to make that character who is invisible seen. And that was how Sonny was born. You know, I I was thinking, I, I want to make this journalist a figure. I want to give her a stake in this story. And with the birth of that character, was the birth of the 2016 timeline in the book. So before it was all just the early 70s, people reminiscing about the 70s, but you didn't really see them. You didn't feel them in present day. And so that experience at the workshop 
really help to deepen the story, make it more layered, more complicated, more interesting. And so what, by the time you finish the workshop and your MFA, I think 2018, mm-hmm. were, was your manuscript complete or did you still have more work to go? I, I had made myself another promise that I was going to finish a draft before I graduated. And I came in, Nikisha, right under the wire. <laughs> I finished that thing <laughs> two weeks before graduation. <laughs> so then what was your step after that? Because I think that's where a lot of writers, especially young writers and new writers get confused or like, okay, now I have this book. It's been edited. It's been revised. What do I do with it? What was next next for you? Next for me was finding an agent. And I had met with some who would come to visit the workshop and meet with students and get to know them. I had been to Tin House, which is a writer's conference in 2017 and met some agents there And I knew the agents that my writer friends worked with. So I had a list of maybe about six or so agents that I knew that I wanted to were like at the top of my list and that I wanted to submit to. And I really made it a point, though, not to share work with any of them until it was completely finished. Mm. I would give them maybe like five pages of the beginning just to get them intrigued. And so they would remember me when I came back to them when I was done. But probably some of the best advice that I personally ever got uh, about the publishing process is don't really show the project that you're working on to an agent until you're completely done with the draft that you're happy with, because you don't want any other hands in that until you understand what it is fully that you are doing and that you feel like you have accomplished what, what you set out to accomplish. And so that draft that I had done at graduation was the draft that I felt happy with. And I felt, I felt I understood it and I knew what about it was important to me and what I was open to talking about and revising. And that made my meetings later with agents very clear in understanding who I would work well with, if that makes sense. Yeah. Yeah. Because working with an agent goes through, there's like another revision there before it goes. Yes. For the, for the publishing process. So, Absolutely. Yeah, and, yeah. And finding your agent and being comfortable in understanding your manuscript, did the draft that you were happy with at, the, at graduation, did it deviate much from what we have now? Yeah, especially the second half. The second half we worked on quite a bit. Uh, we did two revisions one more major one and one smaller one just to nail the ending uh, my agent and I worked on together. He and I were very aligned in terms of what was powerful about the book, which for me has been Opal's story. And our goal in revising it was to bring all of that out more. So having some things recede so that Opal could become larger um, was was basically the the bulk of my work with my agent in in that process. And 
yeah, I was, I just remember, and this is, you know, revision is hard work and it's sometimes painful work because it's like letting go of certain things that you might've felt an attachment to. But in those first revisions, I remember feeling more excited because we were getting closer to my intention. We were just getting closer and closer and closer. And so it felt um, electric, like doing revisions. Uh, Yeah. So in that revision, that focus on the second half, I'm going to ask, is that after the Chet revelation and then basically Sarah Lee? It's sunny Sarah Lena goes and basically her and Opal have it out and she's yeah. like, oh, finally it was getting it was getting uh uh-huh. headed up on that pedestal. Uh-huh. Uh-huh. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. Everything that happens after that moment was different. Um, not not necessarily plot wise, but we did a lot of tightening and we did a lot of honing and focusing and like making certain things louder certain moments bigger um like we did a lot of work on the the Bob Highs memorial scene where they have their so yeah we did a lot of work on that um and some other things you know there's there's a particular line right after that Chet Bond revelation that I didn't really have that that tone. And we just added in that tone and kind of making Sunny more rounded and a little less professional and more emotional as you get into that second half. Yeah, what I noticed in, in reading is that by the time I got to the second half, the pace picked up quite a bit and then yeah. everybody's like facade except for like maybe rosemary and holly yeah. they all drop their facade and they start to cussing and it gets yeah. real colorful i was like oh here we go, here we go. <laughs> and that was fun you know that was really fun and it was really my exploration of because there are so many facades in entertainment there's the images that people want to present and the ways in which they like to present themselves. And then there's like, what's really real. And that's Sonny's work in the book is to get to that point of, okay, this is, this is what's real. Okay. So I want you to read something from Oakland. And I'll set you up with the description. So here we go. Opal is a fiercely independent young woman pushing against the grain in her style and attitude. A black punk artist before her time, coming of age in Detroit, she can't imagine settling for a comfortable job. Despite her unconventional looks, Opal believes she can be a star. So when British singer-songwriter Neville Charles discovers her at a bar's amateur night, she takes him up on his offer to make rock music together for the fledgling Rivington Records. In early 70s New York City, just as she's finding her niche as part of a flamboyant and funky creative scene, a rival band signed to her label brandishes a Confederate flag at a promotional concert. Opal's bold protest and the violence that ensues sets off a chain of events that will not only change the lives of those she loves, but also be a deadly reminder that repercussions are always harsher for women, especially Black women who dare to speak their truth. Decades later, as Opal considers a 2016 reunion with Nev, music journalist S. Sonny Shelton seizes the chance to curate an oral history about her idols. Sonny thought she knew most of the stories leading up to the cult duo's most politicized chapter. 
But as her interviews dig deeper, a nasty new allegation from an unexpected source threatens to blow up everything. Provocative and chilling, the final revival of Opal and Nev features a backup chorus of unforgettable voices, a heroine the likes of which we haven't seen in storytelling, and a daring structure and introduces a bold new voice in contemporary fiction. And that is you. Oh, <laughs> so flattering. <laughs> this is the beginning of chapter seven, and it's taking place in 1970, and Opal has left her hometown of Detroit where Nev has discovered her at an amateur hour at a club. And she is going to New York City to cut an album with him as a background singer. And this is, this part opens with Sunny sort of giving the context of all that. And then there's a little bit of an Opal interview. Opal Robinson arrived in New York City via bus in July, 1970. The same month and year, Funkadelic dropped that fierce edict to free your mind and your ass will follow. She lugged to the taxi stand at Port Authority two duffel bags, one of them bursting with brand new fabrics, sewing supplies, and paperbacks, the other stuffed with an assortment of shoes for every season and cheap synthetic wigs. As for the fluffy Afro wig that would not fit into her luggage, she wore that during her travels. In her jeans pocket was a slip of paper with the address for her new home in Harlem. She had found the room listed in the classifieds of the Amsterdam News and arranged to rent it via phone from her station at Michigan Bell after the other accounts payable girls had gone home. She gave the address to the hack and from the back seat of his cab, Opal absorbed her new environs. In the city of nearly 8 million people, she was completely anonymous. No one she knew, neither relative nor acquaintance, could say her exact whereabouts. Opal Jewel. I'm an old chick now and I like my quiet. But when I first came to New York, I was 21 years old. I could feel the energy of that place jolt through my body soon as I stepped off the bus. At first, you just noticed the nastiness. You know, everything was so extra, extra hot, extra funky, extra loud. But sitting in the back of that yellow cab, I was like an astronaut in a shell traveling through space, pressed up against the window and taking in the stars. There were businessmen in brown and blue suits looking clean and sharp, Teflon dons on those dirty ass streets. I saw swarms of moving people, people who knew rules I didn't yet know. And in the swarm, you could pick out gray haired society ladies and Hispanic workmen and Hasids in their outfits, the curls and hats and coats, even in that summer heat. And then we drove alongside Central Park and I saw a fully grown sister on roller skates in a plaid sundress and cornrows, hollering at folks to get out the way and rumbling down the sidewalk like it was the most natural thing in the world. And I thought, oh my God, my people. Rosemary Salducci had sent me a sublease from some other place Rivington had found for me. I don't even remember where it was supposed to be, but I was adamant about being in Harlem. So I never signed those papers. I had lived among black people my whole life and I didn't know a lot about New York except the things I saw secondhand. Harlem seemed to be a place where Negroes congregated, but sometimes of their own volition. And it was a place that inspired so much creativity. So that's where I wanted to stay. Somewhere I could start my own personal renaissance. I'll stop there. So what I noticed in reading the book is that in the oral history sections, from page one, everybody's like responses and recollections of the 70s 
are very secure, very acute and like precise observations about black life. Like it's just like hitting you in the face from from page one. I, it, it it lasted throughout the whole thing, and so I was like, was was there safety in you just I guess telling it like it is and not making any bones about it, but giving it into the voices of these other characters? Hmm. That's interesting. Um, yeah, I think, well, I was very intentional. I wanted to be very intentional about centering Blackness and Black life um, and Opal's experience. And I wanted to be very detailed because I think what feels real is that accumulation of detail. Um, the more specific you are, the more clear the picture becomes. Um, and in terms of the voices, you know, I think that um, the Black characters, Pearl and Opal especially, Pearl is Opal's half-sister, never really leaves Michigan. Um, I was thinking about things like the Great Migration and the fact that um, no matter where we may be from, and I use from in air quotes, in the United States, um, and they are from Detroit, the North, everybody's a little bit Southern just because all we trace all our people back down South. And so there are certain things that all our voices have in common, I think. Um, as, as black people. And so I was thinking about that, you know, I was, I was worried at the beginning when I was writing this, I was like, do they sound too Southern? You know, cause that's where I'm from. I'm, you know, I'm from Jacksonville and we, we get real country, real Southern. <laughs> and I was thinking about the older women in my family and how they talk. And I thought, you know what? It's okay. I think it's, I think it's okay. Um, and so that's kind of where those voices, those voices overlapped. And then I think Sunny, as the journalist being Black, I think that she is also trying to focus her book on Opal's experience and a lot of um, Black experiences. And so the questions that she's asking people are focused on, on those things, like no matter who they, who they might be. Um, I hope that I hope that answered your question. It did. I just like so from the very beginning, Opal was first described as an ugly bald headed bitch. And I was like, oh, okay, here we go. <laughs> and then like on 30, on like page 37, she describes herself. She says, you know, how in the world did a woman so black and so ugly manage to believe she could be somebody? And so I was just like, mm. their observations of each other and themselves mm. are just so mm -hmm. acute. Like and and then I had to laugh out loud when I think Howie went to Atlantic Beach for uh, <laughs> for vacation. He called it Coastal Crackerville. I was like, well, yeah. damn. <laughs> well, it's funny because I think that I think that um, white folks they also like like to differentiate between themselves, you know, because Howie is very messed up in his own way, but he's like, I'm not like that. Like yes. that's that thing over there. Although he is horrible. In his in his own way, <laughs> so yeah. yeah, like he's not a redneck, but he's his own New York Northern white. That's right. That's right. 
microaggressions and racism. Yes. 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 Um, was it easy for you to escape to escape inside of the format of an oral history after working so many years as a journalist? Is that what you felt most comfortable and what rang true to you and giving, especially once you gave Sonny a voice and a, a storyline? It felt, it did feel very comfortable for me. And I, I don't really know why that is. I mean, I know that oral history is a form that I love to read. It was a form that when I was at Entertainment Weekly, we worked a lot with when we were writing about kind of iconic movies and TV shows and albums. And I just loved it because it really lets people be raw. You know, they're not filtered through anybody else's, you know, context or filters. Um, And often the people who are being raw are people who are celebrities, you know, actors or musicians. And so we have this image of them and it's interesting to like see them talking and get their unfiltered thoughts and kind of think about that, how that compares or contrasts with how we've imagined them to be. I thought that that was very interesting. And I liked in that format how people's memories are different. People remember different things different ways. And so the reader becomes very engaged in the process of trying to figure out what's true and what's real. And I thought that that was an interesting dynamic. But I also liked, I liked that it gave me a very solid structure because within that structure, I could really play and experiment and think about, you know, not only using interviews, but newspaper articles and transcripts from talk shows and all kinds of different things that I could bring in when I needed them something about having that structure was very comforting because I just, I knew what it was. And then, so that allowed me to be uncertain inside it. And I don't know if that makes sense. It was, it was, it felt very playful in a, in a weird way. I can see that in, in being playful in a structure that you're comfortable with reading and then working in as a journalist and then just giving that into the fiction landscape. Because as I was reading, and, and, and then even with the footnotes too, I was like, okay, now I got to go to Google to see which part of the story is, is the truth and which part of this she's making up. Because <laughs> the, the lines were starting to blur. I was like, okay, now this happened in real life, but this is from the book. <laughs> and that was really fun to, to blur those lines sometimes. And it's, it's, a, it's a huge compliment, I feel, to me that people are saying that it felt real in that way, that they were unsure. It felt very real. And then even even toward the end when it's like right before the revival and then you have all the quotes from um, the like present day celebrities, like you had Janelle Monae and a couple others. And I was like- It was fun. It was fun. Yeah. And then also in in the book, it's, it's so much the oral history, but then it's also- I guess the racial politics of the time that then are still current going from the seventies with Opal and Neb and the riot that happened there and the response to it. And then extrapolating that to 2016, where it's, 
the election of Trump and yeah. the campaign between him and Hillary and everything that happened in that time. And you say on page uh, 117, America, we always got to be assigning shit, always labeling, labeling it and stuffing it in a box. So that made me wonder, what do you wish America didn't assign? Hmm. <laughs> wow. I got all day. <laughs> <laughs> For me, what I was getting at in those lines, you know, I was talking specifically about music. And in the past, not so much anymore, but in the past, music could be very racialized. Mm-hmm. Um, and when I was a teenager, you know, I had all kinds of musical tastes. And I was really drawn in the 90s to some of the alternative rock, some of the indie rock, some of the stuff out of the UK that was happening. And it felt taboo for me to like that. And I think it felt that way because I didn't really, I didn't really see myself reflected in that music. And that was hard back then because Music, I think, was such a part of our coming of age and our identities. Like music would, the kind of music you listen to would affect what you wore, you know, what your style was and who your friends were and all of those things. And so in some ways, like that felt, that felt good in some ways because it meant like music was like deep in your soul, but in other ways it could be very defining of you and it could make those boxes that Jimmy is talking about in, in that part. I think it's a little bit different today because there's really, I mean, the music industry has changed so much and because music is so freely available and it's in the cloud and for better or worse, I don't know that we have that same kind of deep connection to music that, that, that we used to. Um, And so, but that's also very freeing, right? Because it means like you can like, you can sample different things, you can like what you like, and it doesn't necessarily define anything about you. So what I was talking about in that section was, was, was that, but I think there are also, you know, um, there are also these persistent ideas that like, oh, black people don't do X, like black people don't do Y. And that's also kind of what I wanted to get at because yeah, we do, like we might not be in vast numbers, but pretty much anything you can think of, there's there's one of us, there's somebody of us like doing that thing or interested in that thing. And so, yeah, I kind of like wish that we could we could break out of that. And it's funny because my mother sent me, sometimes she'll send me little clips of things off the local news in Jacksonville. And she sent me, there was a report about a sister in Jacksonville who has a surfing school for little black kids. 
And I was like, that is so cool. That is so amazing. And she talked about part of her mission being like, let's broaden things. Like, let's show that we are involved and interested in many different things, including surfing or skateboarding or like any, you know, all of these, all these cool different things. It's all about exposure. Yes, my son definitely wants to go surfing after from <laughs> being at the beach so often and seeing so many people out there with their boards. And I was like, okay, dude, when you get a little older, <laughs> we'll we'll figure this out. How much of yourself did you put in some of the scenes in the characters? Because like there's a conference room scene with Sunny. And she's experiencing microaggressions from the other co-workers and I guess the one who thought he should have been named editor-in-chief. And then there is a, a line on page 132 where Sonny says, you know, am I capable of pulling that off about, you know, writing the book and really telling the story? And I always like to find, I don't know, I, I, I read books and I'm like, that sounds like an author thought and not a character thought, but it's given uh-huh. to a character. So uh-huh. how much of yourself did you put into Sunny's character in creating her there's a decent dash of of (laughs) myself in Sunny um and I guess I I can talk about this because Time Inc the corporation unfortunately no longer exists but when I worked at Essence Time Inc had majority ownership they had ownership of Essence and um Oh boy, I haven't really talked about this before, (laughs) but I always had a sense that as incredible as the Essence staff was, as much experience as we had between us, as many credentials as we had, and as deeply as that we knew our audience, I always felt the the parent company um, kind of overseeing us in a particular way and perhaps not always trusting the editorial choices we would make. That was incredibly frustrating. (laughs) And I think, you know, that particular scene you're talking about, the boardroom scene, is not really drawn from any one instance, but it is sort of a bit reflective of the kind of microaggressions and the second guessing that you could sometimes do of yourself as an editor, even with all the experience that you had behind you and everything that you felt confident about that you brought to the table, like always just like paranoid about, you know, how the parent company was going to approve it or not approve it or assign budget and like all of those things. I I recognize it immediately. And even though my journalism career was in television, there was always a different atmosphere when corporate came to town, when the consultants came in, uh, when we would do our meetings every every, uh, afternoon about it's like a postmortem uh, of the night before when I, or the, the day of whatever show I was working on. And right. 
And so when I was reading that, I was like, mm, I know that uh-huh. I know this life. Uh-huh. Uh-huh. <laughs> yeah. And then with Sunny, you know, I think she and I have other things in common in terms of, you know, the kinds of music we were interested in and just being music fans in general and being so affected by music generally is something else that we had in common. As an author and a journalist, do you find that what we as Black people want to write about and what we get to write about are two different things since we're always answering to an editor in one form or another? Hmm. That's a really good question. I will say that one of the reasons I am very happy that I am a late bloomer here, that I entered writing fiction professional, well, publishing fiction, yeah, <laughs> um, at in my 40s is that I am very adamant about the things that I want to write about. Mm. And I understand when looking, you know, when I looked for my agent, when we went out on submission and looked for editors, I didn't really listen to feedback that was trying to change certain things. I just said, well, this person is not my agent or this person is not my editor. And that was it. And it was like having the confidence to know that my agent and my editor would be out there, I think is a feeling that I might not have had at 25 or 26. I might have been more inclined to think there was something wrong with what I was doing instead of leaning in to what I was doing. And even through the editing process, even little, you know, things like the copy edit, right? There are certain words, certain turns of phrase in there that I'm very intentional about. And the copy editors, and I'm a former copy editor, you know, being very diligent about things being, you know, well, this is grammatically incorrect or, you know, there's a line in which I, there's a line where I have Opal saying like, you a lie, which we all know what that you means as Black yeah. people, you a lie, right? But it would come back from copy like, you're a liar. And I was like, no, 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 no. no. And they were great about it, you know, but they just didn't know. But it's like, you have to have that confidence in what it is that you're saying and who it is that you're writing for. And to step that you're a liar and say, please change back to you a liar. But you mentioned that you say that you're a late bloomer in this area, but I wonder if that, if that gives you more of, I guess of a foundation to stand on. Cause I, I've, I've heard people say, you know, when you get to 40, you're just like, you don't give a fuck anymore. Mm, mm, so mm, like, I, mm, I'm not quite, there, I'm not quite <laughs> there yet. So I'm just like, if, 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 if that was kicking in as like, you're not my editor, you're not my agent, put it back the way I had it because 
it's your work. And so you have that foundation under you where you're not 25, you're not trying to please, you know who you are, you know what you want to say. And yeah. that that element of not giving a fuck to make your work stand the way you want it to stand. Yeah. And I will say it is when you get to the, the publishing piece, when you're talking to the agents and the editors, it's a trust thing, right? Because there are certain things that you need to listen to them about and consider. You know, I did, as we discussed, I did those two revisions with my agent. I did about three with my editor, right? Where we went back and forth on certain things, but we had to, both of those relationships, I had to be confident that they supported the things that I'm trying to do at the core so that, yes, we can have a conversation about the Paris chapter or about the ending, you know? And um, I think I approached workshop the same way because there were some people who, when they read those first pages, they were like, I don't think that you can keep this up for a full novel. And I was like, yeah, I can. That's fine. But it wasn't like I wasn't upset about it. I was just like, okay. That's your you opinion. Yeah, that's your opinion. Going. And I knew what feedback to listen for, you know? Mm-hmm. And usually when you're a writer, you know the parts that you don't feel confident about. And you know they're not working, but you don't know why. And for me, workshop was the experience of listening to people talk about those sections that I was uncertain about and listening for what they had to say. And that's everything else was kind of like, okay, that's fine. (laughs) You know, it's about what you take and what you leave. Yeah. Take the meat and leave the bone. Mm, Yes. All right. And then you, you just mentioned this a second ago about, you know, song lyrics and music. What kind of lyrics and albums how did your love for music help you craft this story of this punk rocker? It makes me think of Grace Jones. I don't have an equivalent for Neb, sorry. <laughs> but I immediately thought of Grace Jones as, as Opal. Yeah. I yeah. thought of Andre Leon Talley as Virgil. As Virgil, uh-huh. uh-huh. And I was like, so, so how did your love for music and even being in New York where there's so much culture help you craft this, this, these characters in this story? I'm really glad that you brought up New York because I think living here, I've been here now over 20 years with that break for graduate school in there. Um, But I think the experience of living in New York is like living in a collage. (laughs) There's like a multimedia collage, you know, it's like, imagery and sounds and all kinds of different cultural influences and food. And it's just very loud and vibrant. And I think that had some influence in sort of the way that the book feels like a collage of interviews and media and transcripts and Sonny's editor's notes and all these different things coming together. Um, And I think lyrics 
I don't write them really. I mean, what I have in the book is only snippets of lyrics, but you did. Oh, thank you. Thank you. I, um, I remember very viscerally the experience of going to the record store (laughs) and getting that new release that you want so badly, you know, buying it and racing home and putting the CD on and sitting with a book of the liner notes and listening to the whole album all the way through while reading the lyrics. And there's something in that experience that I miss. I miss it so bad. Um, But it was like burning those lyrics onto (laughs) your consciousness and memorizing those lyrics. My husband and I just had this conversation actually, because he was talking about missing memorizing rap songs, you know, um, how you would like know every word. And um, I wanted to kind of get at, at that a little bit and get at that passion and the things like music also being a tactile experience, something you can feel and touch. Mm-hmm. And I wanted to, you know, write the scenes involving music with that kind of tactile imagery um, was something I wanted to do because that's what feels like involving about it. That's what feels emotional. Like you feel it in your body and you feel it in the person next to you and the sweat off their shoulder and like (laughs) all those things. That definitely came through, even like the scenes where Sunny was going to the library to listen to the albums. And then later she's in Bob Heise's vault, I guess, picking yeah. albums. It made it reminded me of like last Thanksgiving. I was my, my family and I, we were at my mom's house for Thanksgiving dinner. And my husband noticed that she still had a record player that, you know, actually works. And so he's like, where are the records? Well, they're in the basement. So I was like, I'll go get some because I know, I know what he likes. So I literally went down in the basement, had to go through all the records to pull the ones that he liked or that my mom would like or that I would like. I was so dusty by the time <laughs> I came back up and then like, I had all these records. I'm like, okay, this should last us the week. But even like we had, I had a conversation with colleagues when I was still in the newsroom about like, you know, how having to carry your music everywhere you go like in the car like I had that real big like 300 cd case oh yes with yes. all of my with all of the um the, the album inside jackets and yeah. then I would have one on my visor so that I could the ones that were my favorite I could flip up and get yeah. down really quickly I was like you know now everything's on your phone or on the ipod like kids don't know I felt really old I like know. these kids don't know what it's like to try to pick a, pick a cd out at a red light and change it real quick <laughs> And so I, that's I, so funny. That totally came through in in that visceral experience of music and listening to it and and going actually going into a record store or a CD store like the CD stores I used to go to don't exist anymore. Right. I mean, the in New York there was a Virgin megastore at Union Square. Mm-hmm. You know, and whenever you had to meet somebody, meet me, meet me at the Virgin, and everybody knew where that was, you know, that was, that was the spot and you would go in and they'd have the listening stations with the headphones and, you know, I mean, and, and music was expensive. CDs were expensive. Listen, 
but it was like, you know, you valued it. Like, this is like, it says, it says something about you and like, it reflects something you're feeling and all those things. And we would buy it. We would buy it. Like, I remember because albums would come out on Tuesdays and when yes. I was in high school, I had off-campus lunch. And so once I could drive, I would drive. There was a mall like down the street from my high school. I would drive to the mall, go to the music store, buy my CD, yep. put it in the car. And that was how I spent my lunch break some days, depending on what was coming out. And I did that yeah. for a while, even, even up almost kind of through college, like the early 2000s, I would still go and buy albums that I really wanted instead of just downloading them like now. It's right, right. No point, but yeah. So I want to transition to a quick speed round and then let you go. Uh, so first question, what is your favorite book? Ooh, my, my favorite book. Um, mm, well, I will say the first one that came to mind is Go Tell It on the Mountain by James Baldwin. Um, beautiful book that I only actually read for the first time, maybe about four or five years ago. Um, but a beautiful piece of writing and a beautiful piece of craft. Who is your favorite author? <laughs> now, you know, Nikisha, I have to go to my list because I <laughs> always like, um, I love Edwidge Danticat. I think she is a beautiful writer in many different forms, in memoir and in short fiction and in novel. I think, I think she's fantastic. I also have to say that I love Jacqueline Woodson. Mm. Yeah. Okay, this question is probably going to be hard, but what is your favorite album? Mm. So, okay, I do have an answer for this and I'm going to think about it. I don't know that I have, I can say a favorite, but if I had a Desert Island disc, like I could only take one, I would take probably an album that brings with me all the people I have loved over my life. And that would be Talking Book by Stevie Wonder. And what is your favorite song? Mm. (laughs) I will say a song called This Must Be The Place by Talking Heads. What was the first time you saw yourself reflected in any art form? Mm. I actually talked about this uh, recently. I will talk about the first time I saw myself in a book, which is um, Zora Neale Hurston's Their Eyes Were Watching God, which I read for school in seventh grade and saw Janie, young Black girl from Florida. um, And... I saw myself also in the writing itself, in the prose and how Hurston switches between the more formal narration with the Black vernacular, which to me feels like home. Hmm. Yeah. Was the Opal and Nev double album that didn't happen inspired by Outkast? (laughs) It wasn't, but it should have been. Yeah. That was the first thing I thought of, like, his and hers, okay, speaker box, love below. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. Right. Yeah. All right. Yeah. Um, what are three things on your bucket list? Ooh, I want to go to Japan. Um, oh. I, you know, 
I have loved this virtual tour, but I would love to actually do a in-person tour today. My, um, well, my, my UK publication date is today. And I always sort of dream that I would get to be in London for that. So I'm hopeful for the paperback. Um, and I would love to, we haven't done this yet. And I have been talking with a, a friend of mine. I would love to do some kind of reunion with my college friends, like a yeah. big reunion with my friends. Cause we're getting older and, you know, we've had some people close to us pass away and, you know, I, I would love to just see them and spend like a weekend laughing and catching up. I encourage this. My my college roommates and I, for our 10-year anniversary from graduation, we went to Cuba in 2018. Oh, wow. um, Cuba owes us nothing. <laughs> <laughs> You'll just leave it at that. I'm going to leave it at that. Cuba owes us nothing. It, it, it was amazing. But yeah, so I, I encourage that. Um, if you could live anywhere in the world, where would it be? You know, it's that's it's a it's a funny question because I have had some good times in London, <laughs> but that was like before Brexit and all that mess. So I'm like, <laughs> I don't know that that they're that much off from where we are here, and it's like so many places have caveats like that, you know, it's like, well, <laughs> there's this problem, there's that problem. But I will say um, I did have a lot of fun in, in London. I, I, yeah, I enjoyed my time there. London owes me nothing. <laughs> I understand that I, I interned in London for a summer um, when I was an undergrad. Yeah. How you, how you could want to stay. Yeah, I enjoyed it. <laughs> I enjoyed it. I enjoyed it. Right. And then if you had to curate a soundtrack for your life right now, what five songs would be on it? <laughs> because um, you did the soundtrack for the book. So I'm like, what's I your know. soundtrack for your life? I know. Oh, my goodness. Um. The Pointer Sisters, I'm so excited because I just referenced that song the other day when I was talking to Robert Jones Jr. We were getting ready for our event. Um, mm, whew, I just had one in my head and I lost it. Uh, <laughs> I'll say, I'll get a little rock and roll in there and say Paranoid Android by Radiohead. <laughs> Um, can I give you three instead of five? Three is five. Okay, I need one more. Um, I am also, I am also a newlywed. Um, we, my husband and I just got married. We've been married a little over a year. Congratulations. We had a big, thank you. We had a big wedding ceremony, um, planned that we've postponed three times and are hoping to do it, uh, in in October 
And we have a lot, a whole like wedding playlist, but one song that's not on there that I actually would think about adding is um, A Song for You by Donny Hathaway, Mm -hmm. which is a song that makes me tear up almost every time I hear it and has special meaning, I think, as we have been so many places in our lives and times <laughs> and going through so many things in pandemic at this moment. Uh, that's, that's, I'll say that's the last one. I love that. All right. So my final question for the podcast, you spent a lot your career as a journalist. You're now delving into your career as a novelist. When you're dead and gone, what would you like someone to write about your legacy? Mm. I would love to be remembered as part of a tradition, as part of a legacy, as part of a community. That has been one of the more joy joyful things about this publishing process is to be in that Black literary community with so many brilliant thinkers and so many genuinely warm and generous people who have helped to lead me through the gate. And I would like, I would like it to be known that, you know, that I also helped people through that gate. Donnie Walton, that was it. <laughs> Thank you so much, Nikisha. Big thank you to Donnie Walton for joining us on Black and Published today. Make sure you check out Donnie's debut novel, The Final Revival of Opal and Nev, out right now from Simon & Schuster. And if you're not following Donnie, follow her on the socials. She's at Donnie Walton on Instagram and Twitter. That's our show for the week. And full disclosure, this is the last full episode of the season. But if you like this episode and want more Black and Published, like, you know, a season two, please hit that subscribe button on your podcast platform of choice. Recommend your favorite episodes to your friends, fellow readers, fellow writers who you think would really get into this podcast. And while you're on your podcast platform of choice, please leave us a rating, a review, a comment. Let us know who you want to hear on the show for season two. I'm serious, y'all. Season two is going to be coming and it needs to be fire. You can also follow Black and Published at Black and Published on Instagram and Twitter at BLK and Published. And if you want to keep up with me in the interim while the podcast is on hiatus, while I get ready for season two and, you know, having a baby and major changes in my life, head to my website. It's newrights.com. N-E-W-W-R-I-T-E-S dot com. Or you can follow me on Twitter and Instagram. I'm at Nikisha underscore Elise everywhere. That's our show for the week. I'll holler at y'all next time. Peace.